I've been in the mood in recent days to, to deal with questions. Not your questions. I'd rather deal with my questions. That way I know what they are and I can deal with them. No. I've offered to you some questions of different kinds and everything, but recently I, I came across something and I, I thought it was appropriate and I'd like to deal with it less, at least in four things. And it has to do with some questions of what do you want to know about God? And I think there is a part of any of us that we'd like to know more about God or feel like we know more about God than we really do. I mean, we feel like there are some things that we don't understand. Well, I'm going to tell you up front, that's just the way it is. There are going to be things we don't understand about God for sure. But what do we really want to know about God? And I'm going to offer to you some thoughts under the categories, number one, and that was what we're going to look at this evening. Is he real? Is God real? Secondly, does he know me and care for me? Number three, what does he want from me? And number four, why doesn't he reveal himself to me? These are questions that people have given to me at different times over the years and some that have just been expressed in passing. And so this evening I'd like to look at the idea of, is God real? I think that's a vital question. Now, in the next few minutes, I can't give you everything you want to know. I'll only give you a snippet that I think is helpful in my regard. If you go to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, In the beginning God. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you believe the testimony of Scripture, then you say God did this, and all of this flows from that. And throughout that first chapter, we read those descriptions of each day from the first day of light and darkness and the worlds and all of that. And we find, finally come down to the sixth day in the creation of man and ultimately of woman. There are a lot of questions about that. There are teachers today, even in some of the schools connected with the church, but in a lot of religious schools today that, that claim that at least the first 11 chapters of Genesis are mythological or just a story in that regard. I don't believe that. I believe they are a record. I believe they are a record, and I believe they are, if you're going to accept that any scripture is inspired of God and accurate in that regard, then we have to accept the first 11 chapters of Genesis if we've done our homework and done appropriately our translation of Scripture and our application of Scripture. So I take it that way. I don't think I have to tell you that, but I think you understand that. And so we look at those first two chapters primarily because we've got chapter 1 that goes through the description, completing in those things. And, and in the end it says in verse 31, Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. And then simply on the seventh day, he rested. That comes into chapter 2. We go back over some things from a little bit different perspective in the creation of man and, and of woman and so forth in the, in the second chapter that gives us a picture of what God did from a little different perspective, winding up with humanity and the man and the woman and the beginning of the human race. I believe these are real. I really do. Now, I'm not going to give you the scientific explanations of everything by any means, partly because I'm not equipped to do that. You need somebody 
more versed in these things, or more versed in these things, not averse, more versed in these things to be able to do that. What I want to give you is a little bit different perspective, and I'll tell you some things and a little background here. When we go into this, I recognize something happened a great number of years ago when I was still a youngster growing up at home and running around with the guys in my neighborhood. I had a friend who lived a couple of houses away from me, and he's a lawyer in Tulsa today, by the way. So if you need a lawyer, don't go see him anyway. But no, he's a, he's a, he's a good guy. Uh, and Alan was a friend growing up. And I, I had a friend, but he claimed at one point he, he made a clear statement that he was an atheist. As far as I know, his parents and the rest of his family were, were kind of of that nature too. I don't know that he really knew what an atheist fully was, but they didn't espouse any belief in God. So as far as that went. I think he was probably a little more towards the agnostic than truly an atheist, but still. Anyway, we were still kids, and I didn't have great answers to give to him. And when he told me he was an atheist, I said, I've got something I want us to do. I was all of about, we were all of about 10, and I think he was about 11 or 12 years old. And so I took him, I, I invited him over to my house, to our house with some of my other friends, and we went in. It was hot summer afternoon, so we went into the living room, pulled the shades closed, and got out the Jewel Miller film strips. Yeah, we always called them Jewel Miller film strips. Until I was grown, I didn't know they were the Visualized Bible Study series. You know, I didn't know that was the real name of them. But they were the Jewel Miller film strips. And so we watched those and, and in fact, had another neighbor or two came over and watched them with us, but he made that great claim that he was an atheist. And when it came down to it, I don't think he really had any great information. But he did have one question. And his biggest question had to do with the claim that we would make of the omnipotence of God, that there's nothing that God cannot do. And I think most of us have come across that statement that Jesus makes after the rich young ruler walks away and he, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, with, all, with God, all things are possible. Of course, we mentioned that again this morning in the lesson from Mark chapter 9. With God, all things are possible. Matthew 19 and verse 26 in particular. So his question to me was this profound question. If there's nothing that God cannot do, can he make a stone so big he cannot pick it up? Oh, great question. He thought he had the question that has no acceptable answer. As I got older, I realized this is a whole lot like the question that they, they tried to ask of Jesus, or some of the questions they tried to ask of Jesus, thinking either way he answers this, you know. Shall we pay our taxes to Rome or shall we not? Jesus said, well, whose image is on the coin? Well, they, they didn't have him trapped very well. I didn't really have a good answer to him. Either way, it was answered God would be lessened and show less than power, all-powerful in that regard in his way or would not be omnipotent in that regard. Well, a common response from Christian philosophers goes something like this, that this is a paradox that assumes a wrong definition of what omnipotence really is. Omnipotence, they say, does not mean that God can do anything at all but rather that he can do anything that's possible within his nature. The distinction is important. God cannot perform logical absurdities, such as the one we've mentioned. He cannot, for instance, make one plus one equal three. 
I thought about that this week when I was going over this, and I, of course I'm drawing this in from another source. One plus one cannot equal three. Well, in some way, perhaps God can miraculously do that. He'd sometimes make fish where there weren't fish and so forth, but I don't think that's the same. What he's saying is, if one and one is two, God's not going to make it equal three. So, likewise, God cannot make a being greater than himself. He is, by definition, the greatest possible being. So he cannot make a being greater than himself. So you can say God cannot do these certain things. In fact, we can go to Hebrews, the sixth chapter, in verse 18, and the writer of the book of Hebrews passes along to us that it is impossible for God to lie. God cannot lie. That's against his nature. So if God is God, and he is real, he must be true to the nature of who and what he is. Now, that may not always suffice everyone by any means, but I think it makes a lot of practical sense when you think about it. So laying aside some of the phys phys philosophical, I started to say physiological, but the philosophical ideas that we might have or my friend might have had when we were young boys growing at home, I think more in a maybe a teleological or a purpose-driven purpose-driven sense of God and the testimony of his reality. In other words, why is God what he is? What has he done to show us that he is what he is? For to some degree, it is a matter that if we are real, then God must be real. For we are perhaps the most potent evidence of God Far, and we are that far more than we are evidence of a development without God. Let that sink in for a moment. So let me offer to you just a few thoughts in that regard. Again, I'm not going to get into scientific evidence at this point. I don't want to get into a lengthy discussion about uh, the process of the world coming about as a, an evolutionary process, I'm not going to talk about a Big Bang Theory or anything uh, of that nature in that regard. You probably watch that on television enough. But let's look at humanity for a moment. Because from the beginning, almost from the beginning of time, humans have developed unreal gods. I call them unreal gods because they were not gods. There's something in the nature of humanity that longs to have a supreme, a superior being, something that is beyond human nature. And quite often, humanity has drawn from the elements of observation and turned the, such things into gods, even human imagination. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses is reminding the Israelites, when they come into the land, don't make gods out of Physical beings, in verse 16, don't look and think that somebody is a God. Maybe Moses was even thinking about himself. He had led them for 40 years in the wilderness, and now as they come into the land, were they going to say, okay, Moses is our God? Probably not, but would they see one of the giants of the land and say, okay, that's our God? Would they succumb to that and some human being? Much like later, the Greeks developed drawing from some cultures even before them, developed the mythological characters who were superhuman beings, Mount Olympus characters and so forth, and referred to them as gods, but in the likeness of human beings. Verse 17 of Deuteronomy chapter 4, he says, and don't think that God is like an animal and make unto you an image like an animal. 
And we remember when they did that very thing uh, some 40 years earlier in the wilderness under the leadership of Aaron for a short time, but not to make animals that they would worship. And he also reminds of going down to verse 19, just a little bit further in chapter 4 of Deuteronomy. Don't look at the sun, the moon, and the stars and turn those into your gods and begin to worship them. Don't use any other element that, that may have seemed to have some sort of power that amazed you for a little bit, a little power or mysticism to it, and turn that into a god. You might think about Paul and Barnabas on that missionary journey as they're traveling along. They come to Iconium and uh, they, they, uh, a miracle is performed through them. And so these people are greatly impressed with them and refer to them as gods, giving them Greek references to the mythological gods that they have developed along the way. And it's very hard for Paul and Barnabas to stop these people from... Uh, considering them to be gods. What, because as humans, we think if we see something that exceeds the human nature, then it's got to be deity or, or a godlike creature. And so they're warned. But we've done that humanity. I mean, when I say we, I'm not talking about you and me in particular, but humans have done that from the earliest times. But as we look, we see each of these so-called gods, these images, these idols, these superstitions have fallen along. I'm kind of reminded of the line, all the heroes and legends I knew as a child have fallen to idols of clay. They became nothing. You might think about Gideon. When he is, when he is drawn, as the angel came and called Gideon, he says, here's a job I want you to do. You're to go and destroy the image of Baal. So he gets some of his father's servants. He goes, and he goes at night, and he pulls down the image of Baal. If Baal is a god, how can anybody pull him down? You might wonder. In fact, his father, what did his father say? You know, let Baal plead for, for Baal, basically. If he's really a god, let him plead for himself. But Gideon was able to knock Baal down. And there are other occasions like that. Consider uh, the prophets of Baal. An image. The prophets of Baal, and Baal was a common name or Lord or, or God, and sometimes represented more than one particular God, but it was a common, uh, a common occurrence throughout that culture and that time. But we think about Elijah on Mount Carmel, and it's got all these prophets of Baal, and they're up there chanting and singing and everything else, even drawing blood out, trying to get their God to respond to them. And Elijah's over there saying, maybe you're not loud enough, maybe he's gone, maybe he's, you know, he's asleep for a while, maybe he's, he's uh, relieving himself in the outer room for a little while. You know, Elijah's making fun of it, but never did God. Baal respond to them and yet as Elijah calls out to God with the water and the trench and the altar and all that there and God immediately responds and boom but we've had unreal gods for a long time you say but that was then those were a superstitious ancient people well what about today's gods I think we're typically not into the worship of inanimate or even animate objects. There are cultures, of course, today that believe certain animals are holy in a sense. But we are not generally given into the worship of the image of animals or the images uh, or any kind of particular image. Sometimes images to represent something are brought to mind. And we might think about uh, some of the even 
connected to Christianity religions who have you bow before images and, and so forth, but it's not thinking that the image itself is powerful. And so we're not into the worship of, uh, of animate or inanimate objects. Objects are generally seen as the works of a mystical being or something. Even when somebody sees the image of Jesus on a piece of toast that was cooked in a toaster, they're thinking this is a representation of some great being that has brought this about and so forth. Or somebody has some sort of unexplained benefit. Some, something that comes along that happens, a, an event. Maybe it's circumstance, whatever it might be. But think about the common gods. Think about it. The most worshipped gods, and maybe your list would be a little bit different than mine, but I think it's going to contain these. Let me give you just two or three here in the regard of, I think one of the most common gods of today is human intelligence. We believe greatly in human intelligence. We worship human intelligence. Do I have something wrong with human intelligence? No, no. But what I'm saying is we believe that human intelligence has the answers to everything. And we gripe when we don't immediately find the answers. Now, I know when you're somebody like me that is so intelligent, I thought the laughter might be a little bit bigger than that. Anyway, when, when we, think, we think we are quite, and, and I'm speaking generally, able to solve any problem that comes around, and we struggle with that. I think about how we're scrambling right now trying to figure out how to handle this virus that's out there and so forth. And I think human intelligence, we think we're going to solve every issue in the world. We listen to politicians, we're going to solve every issue in the world. And what we found is human intelligence again and again and again is so short-sighted and so limited. But I'm not taking away from human intelligence. I think we depend on it. We, we rely on it. But is it a god? Ah, but we tend to worship it. Another would be scientific results. We think that science has the answer to everything. Science is a study of things that exist. I'm not cutting it short. I love it. I think it's fantastic. We study our results in geology and medicine and even archaeology. And, and there are great studies in these things that tell us a lot of things about our, our world and the, the environment in which we live and so forth. And, and we have a lot of studies that figure these things out. And I, and I don't know what everything means within it. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those studies. I think they're great in most regard. But to think that they are the source that the studies that we find are the source of all things. No. Nor do they have the answer to all things, or else science would cease to exist. Science means to study, the study of something. And if we know everything, then the study ceases to exist. Well, that may not fit exactly with the lesson, but you understand uh, hopefully what I'm saying. The third God that I've got down, the third God that I've got down is, is power and celebrity or popularity. We celebrate it. We worship it. We watch it on television and in the movies. We read magazines and newspaper articles about them if you still read a newspaper. But we celebrate power. We celebrate the celebrity that is within power and what it's able to exert because that kind of thing gets us to wear the clothes that we wear, dress the way we do, live where we do, drive the kind of cars that we do, or whatever it might be. That's power. And so we worship that kind of thing. We long for it, and we wish we could be that. And again, I'm speaking in the general sense of we. 
But each of these falls short, either in limited by the nature of what they are or the limitations that simply are ours as human beings. So unreal gods. So let's go back. Let's go back to Genesis 1. Genesis 1 and 2, as I said, in the beginning, in the beginning, the Bible states for us that from God for humanity, from God for humanity, in this world as we know it, there is a beginning. There's a point of beginning. And in the description that is given to us, especially in Genesis 1, is a developmental process along with its purpose. That tells us a great deal about ourselves, but it tells us a lot about God. For the creation story describes the basics of the process. No, it doesn't get into all the scientific things and how it was done. And wouldn't it have been amazing to watch as God separated the lands from the waters and air and sky and the waters above, the waters beneath, and all that? Couldn't I mean, it's hard to even imagine how things like that could take place. But the dynamics of his being contain a power of creation within a power of order. And so we see a systematic approach from that very beginning, in the beginning, the systematic approach and not a random development by chance. You know, I'm not, I'm not very good at, at decorating. My wife is far better at that, and I, I generally defer to her in that regard unless she wants to move my chair. But... Uh, you know, my, my decorating ability might be, well, uh, something like that might look good over there. And something like that might look good over there. And before long, you've got this conglomeration, a very ec it's not even eclectic because it doesn't work well at all, uh, of this hodgepodge of stuff that doesn't make any sense at all. But the creation of the world all orderly with explanation about it from light to life. It is done in a way that each benefits within each step so that it flows in an order that it is able to process. If God had created the plant life before he created light, how would the plant survive? You know, and you say, well, it's only a day, Russ. I understand it's only a day, but think about that and the order in which things are done, ultimately coming down to the crowning creation. The crowning creation, and, and I don't mean that in, in some sort of grandiose idea, or some grand way, some, uh, some arrogant way about humanity, but it's, each step is done to benefit the other, leading up to the development or the creation of humanity, taking that uh, ele same elements and making human beings, developing man when everything is ready for humanity. And within the process, we get an inkling at least, if not a full sense of the purpose. For there is a beginning in the process of a choice and a desire. For we look at what God has done, and we look at the days, and from day three on, and we look at it, and he says, and he looked at it, and he said it was good. And we come down to day six, at the end of day six, and he says, and he looked at it, and it was very good. That tells you God cared. God cared about what he was doing. He was invested in what he was doing. It was all appreciated. It was seen as positive. And 
that was not the end of God's action. Because there is a continued involvement and a continued action. When you get to Genesis 3, we see Adam and Eve. We see the problems that they create, the serpent and all of that. And we see God's involvement, even saying, who told you were naked? And he makes clothes for them. He sends them out into the world. He, but he doesn't stop loving them. And there is God throughout. And from that, that point, we have the process that leads us up to Christ. Read the book of Romans, you see some of that brought out there in particular. But there was and is a continuing action of God that keeps the sun shining and the moon at night and so forth and so on and the world turning just as it does. Isn't it amazing the precision at which everything operates? It doesn't do that without the involvement and desire of God. So God is the beginning, he is the source, he is the power of it, he is the nature or the spirit of it, he is the very person behind it all, the personality behind it all. And what I'm telling you is everything about us, everything created in us, everything generated in us calls for there to be a beginning. Every study says, draws us back towards a beginning. Even if we, we can't explain that beginning by our studies and our science completely, but everything points towards a narrowing or a beginning at some point. And I don't know all the theories that are out there by any means. And a lot of study and interested and sincere people involved in it. But some of the theories declare that life arrived here in some minuscule way from someplace else. And what I would try to affirm to you that I truly believe God is that place. He is the someplace else from which it came. And if we draw carefully from the scriptures, we'll say, and we'll come back to this a little bit in the later lesson, that he has shown us that he is real. He has shown you that he is real. The psalmist writes in Psalm 19 in that familiar line, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament, the things that he's developed here, show his handiwork. Now, some of you needed a little more handiwork. Just wondered if you were still with me. But now, everything about us declares the wonder of God. And I've encouraged you, and I've encouraged myself to just look around you. Don't get so caught up in your day that you stop looking. It amazes me to see the sunlight through the clouds from time to time. Not necessarily the rainbow, and that's amazing in itself. And all the things that are put in there. There is a display, if we are willing to see it, in the nature around us every single day. Sometimes in the morning now, I'm usually back at the house in the morning by the time the sun is coming up, and you see that, the, the rays of that sun striking, maybe the clouds are just illuminating the sky and seeing the shadows out there. It's an amazing sight. Now, you, don't, you can take my word for it. You don't have to get up early and go see it. I wish you would if you don't just to see the amazing nature that God has put about us every single day. We, we drive over the river coming down this way. We live on the north side of town where all the cars are paid for. Now, 
we drive across the river coming down here, and, and I know that's not much of a river, and they call it the Oklahoma River now, you know, where we cross it. It's not much of a river, but you know that water flows every day. Every day. Even when it's nearly dry, there's still a little bit of water flowing through that thing. Sometimes they stop it up to do something, but still, the water flows every single day. Amazing, isn't it? Just things that God has put into this world. And I think the science that we use and we love and, and works in our minds allows us, allows us to see that he put into this world. It allows us to see the light, the color, the shape, the texture, and all the other physical aspects that are of his creation, the nature of God. And when light shines through that prism of rain and puts that bow in the sky and we think about God telling Noah, here's going to be your reminder in the sky. When he sees that thing and when we see that thing, we see the beauty of God's design. Who would think to have light shine through the prismatic effect of rain falling falling, and the backdrop of a cloud or just the sky and have that beautiful array of color arching? Across the sky. Why would he do that? Why would anything think about that? But God did. That's what I'm talking about. He cares. It is a testimony to the reality of God. The order, the function, the heavenly bodies that are there, the way that they move, they all declare in their cycles and their working the 24 hour days that we have, the North Star being where it is, the lunar cycles, whatever it might be. And all that they are remind us of the order and the system of God. But we must be willing. Even though it's there, we must be willing to see it for what it is. We must be willing to see God for what he is and what he does. When Moses went to that mountain in Exodus 3, when he went to that mountain in Exodus 3, he went to see why a bush wouldn't quit burning. We don't know about his relation to God before that much. Now, there is some reference to him thinking God had put him there for a purpose uh, earlier in Egypt, but it just sounds like he went to see what was going on on that mountain. And when he got there, he was confronted by God. And Moses was willing to listen. Yes, he hesitated, but he was willing to listen and then ultimately to do what God directed him to do. Moses met God on the mountain. Pharaoh, on the other hand, when Moses and Aaron came before Pharaoh, basically said, as the song says, let my people go, Pharaoh had a hard time accepting. For chapter 5, verse 2, Pharaoh is well known to have said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? He didn't see God. So let me offer this to you, that the reality of God is seen in the identity of his care, of his love for us. This love is shown in the creation and his continuing providential care that we live. And he gave us the marvelous bodies in which we live every day in this world. Secondly, he is shown in his sacrifice and his grandest to, uh, uh, for his grandest creation in the giving of his son and our Savior Jesus. For God so loved the world. We love that verse, don't we? We love the world that he gave his only begotten son. But God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5. Or 1 John 4 and verse 8. And then again in verse 16, he, John just simply says, God is love. Wow. 
the reality of God is seen in the identity of his love, and it is shown, I think, in his continuing providential care. Peter, who is not elaborate in his wording much, just simply says, cast your care on the Lord. 1 Peter 5, verse 7, cast your care on the Lord, for he, what does he say? For he cares for you. Exactly. So, I said, this is not scientific evidence, an exposition of scientific evidence and so forth. And there's a lot of other things of study that we could bring out and show and people that are far better equipped to show these things, ins and outs and studies. And we'll wonder about them and we'll look at things and we'll study time and elements involved in all of these things. And it's all interesting to me. But in the end, it comes back and it reminds me throughout it all, God is real. God is very real. So the presentation is not filled with those things, but it is the simple consideration that the reality of God, I think, can be seen by any of us if we just are willing to look. We're going to sing that song of encouragement this evening that Jim has for us. Maybe you've considered the need in your life and you want to respond this evening. If you do, the opportunity is yours. It's a reminder to us also that God continues to care for us and and has from the beginning of time. If you need to respond to Christ's invitation this evening, won't you do so while we stand together and while we sing the song? <laughs>